science is such a human construct. It comes from our hearts and our brains and our experiences. And I wanted to tell the whole story of where it came from, not just be like a blurb on in, in the midst of a sea of other findings. I'm Michael Tamblin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. We make e-readers and apps, we sell e-books and audiobooks all over the world, and we do it because we love reading and we want to make reading lives better. One of the best parts of the work that we do is that we get to talk with authors about their books, as well as the books that shaped them as writers and as readers. This is Kobo in Conversation. My guest today is Suzanne Simard, professor of forest ecology at the University of British Columbia and author of Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest. It's an astonishing an inspiring book about Dr. Simar's research into the hidden relationships that tie forest ecosystems together. She explains the crucial role of vast underground fungal networks, how trees are able to learn and adapt, and how special mother trees go about ensuring the well-being of the forest community. Suzanne Simar, welcome to Kobo. Thank you for having me. There are a lot of different ways we can start this story, but one version begins with your father, uncle's grandfather, an outhouse, and your dog. <laughs> Can you tell me a bit about that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we had this dog. Actually, it was a dog that was shared among all the cousins and uncles and um, kids and grandparents. His name was Jiggs. He was a beagle, and beagle was, or the beagle, <laughs> Jiggs the beagle was always getting into trouble. Um, and so on this particular day, we were um, uh, in houseboats, actually, at Cottonwood Bay on Mabel Lake. And Mabel Lake is where, for those of us who, who, who aren't intimate with, uh, with, with Canadian geography? Um, Mabel Lake is in sort of south central British Columbia. It's in the Monashi Mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, just sort of, yeah, it's, it's getting, you know, British Columbia has got like many, many mountain ranges. Um, they kind of run north-south. And it's just as you get out of the Okanagan Valley and the, the mountains start to rise again over into the Monashies and Selkirks. And so it's just at the beginning of that. And so as the mountains rise up, the air rises and it rains a lot. So they're actually, we call them inland rainforests. Um, so they're lush, beautiful forests with cedar and hemlock and white pine and Douglas fir. So just beautiful. Anyway, on this particular day, Um, We were all parked in our houseboat. Well, we were in a logger's houseboat, my family, and I was about six, I think. And uh, my uncle Wilfred was parked next door in his houseboat. And keeping in mind, these were handmade houseboats. (laughs) They were on wooden (laughs) logs and they were built by by my uncles and grandparents. And and they housed loggers for the most part. So when you say logger's houseboat, you mean... Houseboat built by loggers, out of logs for loggers. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. They lived on these houseboats when they were logging the mount, you know, doing the selective logging with their horses in the mountains. And so we were parked this August day in um, on Cottonwood Bay, and all of a sudden we heard this barking. <laughs> we were on the, you know, we were probably, I, I think we were on the wharf, and you know, it was really this plaintive. And so everybody, you go, oh, my God, what's happened to Jigs this time? <laughs> and so we all run up to the outhouse and fling open the, 
the door and all the flies came flying out and looked down and there was Jigs way down at the bottom. So, yeah. So we had to, my, my dad and uncles and my dad was really, um, had a weak stomach. <laughs> and so he, um, he always would gag at the, <laughs> at those smells. Um, but my uncles and my grandpa, they just got down to business and they, they dug Jigs out. And so as the digging was taking place, what did you see? Well, for one, it's the colors, right? The colors in the soil and um, and the roots and the fungi. But these soils in particular, now, you know, as I went on through my career, I realized how special these soils were because they were in the inland rainforest where there's a lot of rain. And that means that a lot of water percolates through those soils. And as they do that, um, they create these horizons. Um, and they're all, you know, basically they they start out with like the really thick forest floor which is like the litter that's come down from the birches and the cedars and the hemlocks so really thick rich forest floor with all kinds of insects and bugs crawling through it and thick with roots because the roots were you know a lot of them are at the surface because they they're trying to get nutrients there I mean I didn't know that at the time but I remember my you know the the digging and the pickaxes and trying to get through these roots and then getting into this really, you know, white layer, and then this bright red layer, and that is such a uh, sig- signature of these particular kinds of soils in this kind of environment, where the, the the water percolates through the forest floor, washes sort of organic matter out of this white horizon, which is really drenched soil, and you know, drenched of all of its color, and then that color the iron, the humus gets deposited in this second layer or this deeper layer, which is bright red, red as a heart. And I was fascinated by that red and then it fades to yellow. And so you can imagine it's like a, it's like a Picasso painting. You know, It was so beautiful. And um, yeah, so I became fascinated with all those colors. And of course the French swearing and the, you know, the yelping of the dog and the excitement, it was very exciting. <laughs> You grew up around uh, loggers, foresters. That was the family business going going back generations. What was it like to to grow up as a as a kid around that? Well, I didn't really know, know what that meant, right? Sure, <laughs> it was all I knew. Um, so, I mean, it was it was exciting, you know. Like uh, my my grandfather built all of his own boats, all of his own wharves. He, he built a pile driver. He, you know, they, they would build, you know, they would build, he built his own tugboat. And I remember, you know, them pushing, you know, these big wharves for the, for the summer logging with the horses right on the war, on the wharves, because they had to ch- transport the horses across the lake to where they would log. Um, and, and so all of that was super exciting. And then, um, you know, the, the flumes that my my grandfather and his brothers, they built them all by hand. Um, and, and so we, you know, we just played and hiked and looked at all this stuff all the time. My, my grandfather had this huge um, workshop that he, of course, built himself. And every tool he pretty much built himself. And he was such a tinkerer. And I remember, you know, being in his workshop and just like, oh, my God, this is so fascinating. <laughs> So, yeah, it was pretty cool. And as we'll see later on as we um, as we keep talking, you know, these two things kind of come together in your later research life, you know, being 
close to the forest being um you know kind of right up cr- close and personal with uh with trees but also the constant kind of tinkering and experimentation and putting things together to try and figure out what's uh, what's going on behind the scenes yeah. um you don't aim for a slow reveal in this book you say it right up front trees are talking to each other right <laughs> right in the introduction um and that there is a a network that's pervasive through the entire forest floor young and old trees are communicating with each other old trees are nurturing young ones they can describe threats they pass on solutions it sounds almost magical which i guess is true of the of the very best science uh, we've long believed thanks to darwin that all life is operating in a state of competition for resources and for the survival of offspring what was the first experience that you had that suggested that perhaps this wasn't the case yeah that's a great question um so of course i you know i grew up in this entangled place right where all these trees grew all over top of each other their roots are all entwined their crowns are meshed together you know there's all this huge structure in the forest and keeping in mind these trees are huge right like they're they're like you know 40 meters tall um and and so this is what i knew and then when i um, when I became a forester, which, by the way, I didn't know what a forester was until I went into it, even though I grew up around all these foresters, it was like, what's a forester? But anyway, I... I well, and, and, and take a second, like, d- describe what is a, you know, what is a forester compared to the other careers that tend to be adjacent to forests? Yeah, so, you know, a, a forester is, is someone, a professional, who is trained to... Um, in all stages of forest development and how humans uh, manage and, you know, use those forests, mostly mm-hmm. for timber extraction. Forestry has, you know, traditionally been focused on timber extraction. Now it's, you know, now I'm a professor at UBC and our faculty of forestry is, you know, at least half of the people are conservationists. So, you know, protecting the forest and looking after species at risk and looking at after the hydrology and trying to understand soil. So it's very diverse. Um, but when I was a student, it was much narrower and more focused on timber extraction um, when I was an undergraduate student in the late 70s, early 80s. And so when I, I started there, so focused on logging and bridge building and road building and and silviculture was actually quite new at that time. Silviculture is the art and practice of growing trees. So after the harvesting, then you know there's the there's the sort of like the 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 type of forester who's on the extraction side, and then there's a the second type of forester who comes in and then replants the forest and reforests. And so that was relatively new when I started. And also letting girls into the faculty was brand new as well. Uh, so these things came together and. And so as you know, I came to university not knowing what I wanted to be. I thought maybe I would want to go into um, medicine or writing or, you know, I didn't really didn't know. I didn't know what a forester was, although I grew up <laughs> around loggers and and even there was even a for there was a forester in the family, David Samard. Um, but most of them were just, you know, learned it by the seat of their parents. Um, so that that it was a profession was brand new and astonishing to me. Um, and then I, when I went into it and started learning about forestry, it was it was industrial forestry. 
And when I say that, I mean, at that time, they were moving into this big industrial model of clear cutting and planting following clear cutting. And, uh, and, and the plantations that were being developed were like completely different than these cathedrals that I'd grown up in, right? We, we were converting these, you know, astonishingly diverse forests that were so lush and vital and pr productive into these plantations. And, uh, and then part of that process of planting and then looking after those trees involved getting rid of the native plants. And so this became a big concern for me because I grew up around these native plants, right? The thimbleberries and raspberries and lilies. And, and they were, you know, I was learning that these were evil plants, right? That, that they compete with these conifers and, uh, and that we therefore have to get rid of them. And, and so I, of course, I'm like swept along in this. And as I'm going along, going, why are we getting rid of these plants? Why are we spraying these plants? And, and so then I embarked on this research program. Luckily, you know, I, I, all the things aligned and I, and my job was to figure that out, right? Was how are they interacting with conifers? And as I learned, I realized, I, you know, I was studying it and realizing that, yeah, they're a little bit competitive, for, but for the most part, they just collaborate together, that they're all in this ecosystem and they're inter interacting with each other in intimate ways and helping each other survive in this diverse ecosystem. Now we know diversity is directly correlated with productivity. And here we were trying to get rid of that diversity. And so I knew in my heart that it was wrong because that's not how I saw forests, but I also was able to study it and measure it and find out that, yeah, indeed, it is wrong to do that. You started to build a hypothesis around the cooperation between fungi and trees. And this was something that you, you encountered in the middle of a clear cut in one of your first jobs. When I started out, I was like I was like 20 years old, right? And I'm working for this forest in this, this forest company, um, and it was very basic forestry. And uh, and I was, you know, I was given a number of jobs, but one of them was to do silviculture, and I was just a field technician. And and I was, you know, I had to go and go into these new these plantations. Well, first of all, I was involved with helping plant them. And then I would go back and assess how they were doing and realizing that, you know, these, and they were at the time I was working in these high elevation forests in British Columbia, meaning that they were up the mountains. Um, they were, it was spruce and subalpine fir and right below that is the alpine. Um, so very steep mountainous um, valleys. And, you know, after they would cut these high elevation forests and replant them, the seedlings were not doing well. And, and so I was tasked with, my job was to go back and evaluate them and realizing, you know, what are we doing wrong here? And real, you know, and realizing that, you know, the roots were not taking hold in the soil. And why was that? Um, they were just not connecting with the soil. And so I started to put together this idea, you know, and digging around and trying to understand these dead roots and these dying seedlings and, you know, and, and how they compared with the natural seedlings and realizing that we had completely missed the point here. You know, <laughs> we were planting these little plugs in the soil and they stayed that way. It's like putting a carrot in the ground, whereas the naturally regenerating seedlings had roots that went everywhere, right? And they were colorful and linking in with the soil. And I'm going, yeah, that's what we need to emulate. So that got me started on this journey. And you, you found out along the way that this 
that there was some traditional knowledge around this as well, that the the West Coast Salish people thought the same thing about about roots and trees and, and fungi as well. Yeah. And you know, I I'm not a I'm not a, an Aboriginal person myself, but I've been very fortunate. Um that at UBC, I, I've started, I have a research associate, Dr. Teresa Ryan, who is Simsian nation, which is a mid-coast, up mid-coast British Columbia nation. And um, she brought my, to my attention, um, after I'd done like a ton of research already on networks and fungi and how the forest was all connected together, um, we started working together in about 2014. And um, she should, you know, she said, you know, that we've always known about these. And she, she brought to my attention writings of Bruce Miller, uh, Subier from, from the, you know, the Coast Salish in Seattle area. Uh, he was, was from the Snohomish uh, First Nation or the Snohomish tribe um, along the coast. And he, they're clearly written, you know, that, you know, underground was this vast network of fungi that, you know, that, that connected to these seedlings and helped them survive. And that, you know, that the, that the soil is this, you know, big connected place. And that this was, you know, all, you know, reflected in, you know, they understood this as, as knowing that we were all connected, right? We are all one together. And that is like the worldview of, of the, the nations across North America and around the world is that we're all connected to the earth and we're all one together. And of course, right? They, it made sense. And, um, and I was, you know, I felt um, so happy that I was able to see this, right? And use my clumsy Western scientific instruments to actually see these ancient connections that had, was in ancient knowledge systems already. And, um, and the, the funny thing is that, you know, now, you know, because I've published it in scientific journals and it's becoming more known now people are going oh that's really cool like the rest of the world is getting on board and going oh yeah and the the common response is you know I always knew this in my heart that that it was connected and communicating I could feel it in the forest and it's true like we are from the trees right we are evolved from you know, the eukaryotic cells and the prokaryotic cells that moved out of the ocean onto the land. And we're all one of this in the same and together. And so this is in our DNA, it's in our bones. And so, you know, and Western science is given the license for us to believe it. Whereas, you know, I think in our Aboriginal people, they were those ideas or those, that knowledge was considered, you know, mystical and was largely ignored. And so I'm really happy that you know that that my work is able to provide a window into those ancient and extremely valuable and extremely sophisticated knowledge systems something that this book illuminates so well is how discovery and research can be both fast and slow you know the that there are moments of insight and then years of research and th there are some moments in the book that i i both loved and kind of what found a little bit daunting that could be summarized as and then the experiment didn't work for the next three years <laughs> where where you are you, know, you you know where you need to get to you you've set up a, a set of experiments to try and figure it out and then 
and then not this way and not this way and not this way. And now we've now we've got it going. Can you can you talk about what what propels you forward when it's you know year two of three and all the trees died again and you have to go and replant them and, and try a different way? Yeah, I know that dogged perseverance. Um, well, you know, when you're, when you're working in natural systems like forests, things take, you said you hit it right on, they take a long, 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 long time. <laughs> and, you know, I, I actually have started a pro, an experiment called the Mother Tree Project, which is a hundred year experiment. So obviously I'm not going to see it until I'm, you know, I'm not going to be around for the whole thing, but it's okay, right? Like it's, it's so interesting figuring this stuff out. Um and so like, how do you have patience for decades? And how do you have patience trying things over and over again? Well, you know, I'm driven by wanting to, to, to protect forests, right? And to um, ensure, you know, try to help do my part in, in fostering their resilience. And what drive, you know, I've always been driven by this desire to help the forest or be part of it. Um, and then, of course, I had children later on, and that drove me even more to make sure or to try and do my part to create a better world for my kids or, you know, to at least be part of the solution. Um, so, yeah, that that is so important. Just those inner dri drivers. Um, I think that we, you know... I, it's so important, to, so important to me, you know, every day I go to the forest and every day I thank those trees for, you know, for being part of me or for letting me be part of them. Um, you know, even though forest research takes forever, there's all kinds of little steps that don't take very long, right? You can do this, these little experiments that you go, aha, that's how that little thing works because there's also a lot of things that happen very quickly in forests. So if you drill down into like, the fungi and the bacteria and the centipedes in the soil, they're all moving around really fast. And you can study those and see the immediate effect on the plants and the trees. And, and you know, in a forest, as a forest develops, the, some of the most important things that happen are at the beginning. So when there's a disturbance like a fire or a clear cut or, you know, a blowdown, you know, the, the seeds get established. And that's like such an important thing, right? The, the seeds germinate, they tap into the network and they start to, to establish. And then how they establish right away determines the tra trajectory so much of the rest of the life of that forest. It's like if you get your kid on a good start and they learn to read and they learn to count and, you know, and they have good parenting, the rest of their life should be pretty good. And that's the same thing in forest, what you do early on or how those those plants get established, how the seedlings get established, sets the trajectory and for the most part. And so it's really thrilling to be part of that early stage and then see how it plays out. If we look at the trajectory of your research from, from those first inklings that you had about how trees and fungi might be connected, how trees might be connected to each other, what would you consider to be the moments when big pieces of the puzzle fell into place for you between then and now? That's that's a really great great question, and that that kind of harkens back to your comment that you know there, you can get these big explosions of of discovery, and then like all the filling in of the gaps as you you know for years it can take years to do that, and so the milestones for me, you know, when I started my PhD research was the discovery that, that plants are moving things back and forth. That was huge. 
Um, prior to that, you know, of course, there was my work just figuring out that these native plants were so important to the health of the trees. That was a huge milestone. And so then, then after the discovery that, you know, that birch and fir were trading carbon back and forth, and that got published in Nature, and I got lots of criticism at that point. Um, there was lots of uh, questioning by the academics. There was like pushback from the forest industry and the and government. Um, and I was having kids at the time. And, and through all of that, even though I was completely devoted to forests, I almost threw in the towel on looking at plant communication because it was really difficult. And no one wanted it to be kind of to be true. Like if you were in forest management, it created complications. If you were in government, it caused policy complications. There were there were lots and lots of people who had lots of reasons to hope that maybe you would go away and stop talking. About yeah, exactly. They wanted me to shut up, Samard. <laughs> but um, you're absolutely right. Uh, industry didn't want to know about it because they wanted to keep going on, you know, clear cutting and planting their plantations. Government wanted things to be easy to measure and easy to look after. Like if we just get rid of the competition, everything will be fine. So they developed policies on that. And then academia was really upset because this seemed to, you know, they, they interpreted my work as saying competition didn't matter. And that's never what I said. You know, I always said that some multi-dimensional interaction between these plants but you know how people are they get in camps right oh you know you said this and it must be wrong and it's like you know the truth is always like more nuanced and complex than that um and so yeah so the you know the ecologists the academics didn't want it because it seemed to fly in the face of darwin which is never really the point i was always you know interested in ecology and so was darwin by the way he was a, a good ecologist and, a, and an evolutionary biologist, and he understood the importance of collaboration as well, but it never, you know, got the traction that his work on competition and natural selection got. And it was, wasn't until you know, Lynn Margulis really, you know, developed the endosymbiotic theory and we realized that, that collaboration is an essential part of evolution. Um, but, you know, that didn't really get widely accepted, I think, until the Human Genome Project, when we started going, oh, you know, our DNA is full of virus DNA and, and prokaryotic DNA. And, you know, we were, we were actually like these bags of consortiums of other creatures. And, and so now is, I think it's more widely, it is more widely accepted. Yeah, so there was a lot of pushback. And then, you know, so I thought I'm going to ditch this and I didn't because I left the Ministry of Forests and went into academia and the academia to get grants, you really need to build on your areas of success and expertise. And so I thought, well, I'm going to go back to this. I'm going to start building my grant program and my research program on this. But I was really still frustrated because the science was still hung back by um, you know, visualizing what these networks look like in the for in the forest and proving that they existed. And it's like every study had to keep proving the same thing over and over again. And I'm like, oh, this is exhausting, right? And then um, in about the late 2000s, a number of researchers from China published um, a suite of papers on networks in agricultural crops and realizing that that there were defense signals moving through networks between tomato plants and and it was like they completely blew past, you know, what the Westerners were struggling over was the existence of the, these networks. And they were saying, what does it mean for ecology and evolution? And I'm like, 
thank God, you know, and it's like suddenly the whole field blew open. And at the same time, um, I had a student, Kevin Byler, where we were mapping what the network looked like in the forest. And that was also a second very important point because um, once that map came out, it was like people could relax and say, okay, now we can see what it looks like. Um, <laughs> and so then, since then, there's been lots of important steps, but then I would say the next important step was we, um, we, could, we did experiments with the same group in China who were working with agriculture crops and brought that science to forests and realized that, you know, defense signaling and other kind of information was moving through networks. I actually worked with Yan Yan Song, who was the lead researcher on the tomato plant work. Um, and together we found out that defense signaling happens in forests in a big way, and it affects the upcoming, you know, the next generations of plants, their ability to fend off beetles and budworms and pathogens. We started understanding that, that trees could recognize their own kin. So the area of kin recognition really blew open and uh, into conifer forests. And I, we, I was working one of, with the lead researcher, Susan Dudley on that. And so these to me are huge milestones. Tell me about some of that information that's passing back and forth between trees. What are the, are there big families of communication? How is it, how would you categorize it? Yeah, well, I think like three major areas. So one, the one area that I really focused on at first was resources. So uh, that move through networks. So resources are things like nutrients, carbon, water, things that plants need to grow. Um, you know, the basic building blocks of proteins and, and, and cellulose and, you know, and, and proteins and so on. And then I've moved on and, and now we know that like this other information is moving through. So, so if a plant is injured or a tree is injured, it will send uh, messages to its neighbors telling them that I'm injured um, and you need to pay attention. And so what we've able to see is that, that those neighboring plants then upregulate their RNA and uh, they start making or synthesizing defense proteins and enzymes, and they actually increase their own defense against that, uh, that herbivore or pathogen that's infected the primary plant. So what the properties of those uh, defense compounds moving, or we think they're the defense compounds themselves moving through the network, um, we don't know exactly, but um, it's, it's linked, as far as we can tell, to this other pathway in the initially injured plant, which is called the jasminate pathway. And the jasminate pathway is really, you know, it's been well studied by biochemists. And uh, we know that, you know, individual plants, that pathway is triggered and a whole bunch of intermediary chemicals are produced um, that end up, you know, affecting the root system. And we think that those some of those constitutive elements and chemicals are what actually move through the network. We've done some primary work on like the basic building blocks of those chemicals, but we really don't know what they are. Um, this, the third area is these kin recognition elements. The, what are the chemicals that allow plants to recognize their own kin? Um, we don't really know. We know carbon is involved, but that's about it. At the same time, there's other researchers looking at how plants communicate through the air. And they also are focused on chemistry. Other people are looking at um, sound as a way for plants to communicate and, and perceive things. And there's been progress there as well. But what this is getting at is that plants are sophisticated. They have many ways to communicate with each other. 
And my question would be, why wouldn't they? <laughs> you know, they're sitting in one spot, trees for thousands of years, trying to communicate with their neighbors that are also there for thousands of years. They would develop, you know, a suite of ways to do that. Just like we, when we communicate, have a suite of ways to communicate with each other. One thing that I found most most fascinating about that was the extent to which it can cross species. I think we're all used to communicating amongst ourselves as, you know, as individual species. And we imagine that, you know, dolphins and monkeys and all kinds of other animals can communicate amongst themselves. But you see Douglas firs communicating with ponderosa pines. You see kind of different kinds of trees collaborating with each other across species barriers. And that was, that was really interesting to me. I think the logical place to have started would have been with within a species. And, you know, so Douglas fir was one place where I did a lot of work in these, because they do grow in sort of relatively pure stands. Um, but the most part of our forests here in Western Canada are mixed forests. And I think I would argue around the whole world that, you know, trees and plants grow in communities of many species interacting together. And it is that diversity that provides them with the health and the productivity because they can access different niches in the soil, in their crowns. Um, they can after actually have synergistic effects where their interaction makes them even more productive. Um, and, and so, yeah, you know, starting with a single species makes sense because, you know, it makes sense from an evolutionary point of view that these phenomena would be going on within species, but why between species? Well, I think it is because, you know, that diversity uh, from that diversity emerges health and productivity and resilience. So it makes total sense to me. Where do mother trees sit in the middle of all of this, literally? Yeah, so mother trees are really just the biggest and oldest trees in forests. Um, or even if your forest is one age, it, they would be the, just the biggest trees. Um, and the reason is, is they have great big root systems. So just like they have big crowns above in the overstory, they also have big crowns below ground. And so they have many, many roots with many points of contact. And so all of those root tips are colonized by mycorrhizal fungi. And those are the beneficial fungi that I've studied where they, you know, the tree provides photosynthate for the, the fungus. The fungus then uses that energy to grow through the soil and bring back nutrients and water to the tree. So it's a mutualistic trade. Um, and so these big old trees have many points of of colonization and then the network grows out from there and connects with the other plants. And so they're just the most highly connected purely from a physical point of view, you know, because they have these huge crowns, they photosynthesize a ton. Um, they're, you know, they're the big, you know, even from an energetic point of view, they're the linchpins in the forest and they shovel a lot of carbon below ground at, you know, about half ends up in the soil and the roots. And so when you have a huge energy base like that in your crown feeding the root system, you could also support many, many different kinds of fungi. So there are thousands and thousands of species of mycorrhizal fungi. They all have different niches. Um, some are only associated with big old trees. And those tend to be big fleshy fungi that form big pipelines to other trees. And the reason that, you know, the big trees can support them is because they provide a lot of energy to them. And, and, you know, and then they do their job of shoveling things to the next trees or mining the soil for nitrogen or phosphorus, or whereas the younger trees can't support those big old growth fungi. 
Um, so yeah, so there's multiple reasons, the high connections, the diversity of fungi that, that they support. And then we've also done work showing how, you know, the seeds from these big old trees, when they germinate, they are actually um, favored <laughs> um, because they're kin of these old trees. And, and so there's also this nurturing role of the mother trees. It helps to have you know, powerful parents. Is, yeah. is <laughs> it sure does. <laughs> yeah. Um, you describe yourself as a as a forest detective. Are you are you still in there digging around? You know, as yeah. as much as you have been before. Oh, I just love it. I, yes, I am. Um, I have this big project called the Mother Tree Project that I started about five years ago. The hundred year project that I I mentioned, and um, it's taken all this time to get it set up. And I have many, many graduate and undergraduate students working on it. I'm the, the leader of the project. Um, and I, my favorite place is to be out there with my students, um, setting it up, measuring, you know, digging in the soil, planting the trees. I, I mean, that's what I love. And of course, this project, we're making important discoveries, which, and, and the students, the undergrads and the grads, are, we're all publishing the work um, so it's very exciting for all of us to be part of this. What are you hoping to discover over the course of 100 years? Well, you know, one of the things about the basic research I, I've done on plant communication and kin recognition um, is, okay, so that that's really cool. Those phenomena are cool. Um, for the most part, I would say the industry and governments have ignored those ideas. Um, they still are doing their usual thing of, you know, clear cutting, planting and weeding out the plantations. So I thought, you know, I've got to demonstrate um, how this works. How do we actually apply this in, in forestry? And so the Mother Tree Project is about that, is how do you um, save mother trees, like as singles or groups or big groups, or do you thin them out? And, and then how do you also change the forest slowly so that they're adaptable as climate changes. So planting within those forests migrated genotypes um, from warmer climates to cooler climates to try to get an understanding of, you know, what will that forest look like and how can we help it along as climate changes? We have 24 forests across a 900 kilometer climate gradient in Douglas fir forest. And so it's huge. One, you know, we're finding out important stuff already. Um, so one of those things is that when we keep mother trees, major things happen. One is that they provide seed and we're finding like natural regeneration is, you know, is booming under these old trees. The second thing is we're finding is that when we plant these warmer genotypes underneath the old mother trees, they also are protected. So the, the survival rates are way higher when they're associated with a cover, a partial canopy cover of mother trees. And then I, I would say, you know, other points, um, the diversity of understory plants is way higher because they like that cool, fresh, moist understory protection from the old trees. Um, and then the carbon, the carbon is such an important part. Um, if you clear cut, you lose right off the bat about 60% of the carbon from those forests, um, just from the chainsaw effect, just from cutting down the trees, turning them into pulp or whatever you turn them into. Um, and then there's a disturbance to the forest floor and we lose some of that carbon, we lose the understory. And so it, ta and it takes decades, we found from our modeling decades to recover that. 
And so what this points to is that if you leave some of these old mother trees, you don't lose nearly as much carbon and the sites recover almost like within a very short period of time. From a climate change perspective, this is enormously important because we, as you know, as we have all heard in the news many, many times, we only have a, you know, we don't have much time to change the course. And uh, this is one way we can do that in forestry because forestry, the clear cutting on top of the wildfires that are taking off on top of the beetle kill, on top of oil and gas and urban development is causing our forests to become a net source of CO2 to the atmosphere, whereas they've always been a sink. But if we leave some of these old trees, we're finding they can continue to be sinks. You are a field researcher. You are dragging tanks and tents and <laughs> gear through, uh, you know, through the wilderness. Um, and then working with undergrad and grad students back at University of British Columbia. What, uh, what triggered the impulse to turn this into a book of a popular nonfiction that everybody could read? So, of course, I've, I've published all my work, all these findings in journals, and they can sit there and peer-review journals. And, and, you know, if you're lucky, they get attention from the criticisms. <laughs> or maybe, you know, you'll get a popular science writer write about it. Um, um, but for the most part, you know, science ends up being un, unused or not used enough. We know so much more than we actually apply. Um, so there was that. I was frustrated that, that my work wasn't being taken up and applied. The other motivating thing is, is that lots of other people were starting to write about my work. And um, so it's ended up in different books and even movies. And, and I thought, you know, that's only part of the story, right? That it's very much just focused on these are the results of the science. And I wanted to, to reach out and say, this is a process. It's very much a human it's so human, right? Science is such a human construct. It comes from our hearts and our brains and our experiences. And I wanted to tell the whole story of where it came from, not just be like a blurb on in, in the midst of a sea of other findings, but an actual, this is a story, right? So anyway, I really wanted to convey that. And, and, and of course, I always love to write. And I was, I was kind of frustrated with science writing. It can, you can only you know, you're only allowed so much latitude and I wanted to express myself in a more creative way. Were there any other books that you looked to as you were trying to decide how to tell the story that you wanted to tell? There's lots of them, but um, one of them is The Golden Spruce by John Valent. You know, he, that's a very dramatic, such a great, such great storytelling and dramatic. And it really like you're captivated by it. And, and I thought, I loved that book. It, I thought it really you know, did a great job of conveying, you know, the danger of the business and, you know, just what it was like. And, and then Grant Hadwin, I love the adventure of, you know, Grant Hadwin cutting down the golden spruce. And so I love the, you know, I love adventure. Um, and then I also was reading uh, Nancy Turner's uh, Earth Blanket, who she is an ethnobotanist, um, she was a, a professor at University of, of Victoria, and she's written extensively on uh, on ethnobotany of uh, of plants, but but also you know what it means to the the First Nations of British Columbia. And the Earth Blanket is really about those plants and and the different nations and how they use them and uh, what it meant to them, their philosophy, their worldview. 
Another important book recently uh, was um, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin uh, Wall Kimmerer, who is also, she is Potawatomi and she's written beautifully about, you know, how she relates with plants and how her, her nation related with plants. And, and so that really, I, I was inspired by those. There is so much of you and your life in this book. As you say, it's not just the science. It's not just the research. It is your journey to become a researcher, your journey through the research, while also um, you know, different struggles within your careers, becoming a mother, surviving cancer. Were there, were there points where you were trying to figure out should I put this in? Should I not? Were there were there things that you struggled with in terms of how much to put into the story? For sure, <laughs> of course, yeah. Um, and of course, I you know I learned about story writing and and how you know you to to build to build tension and to resolve. Um, and so yeah, and so building those tension points and what would they be? I actually, I, I, I have an agent and he helped me and, and I had a writing coach who helped me um, figure out, you know, what were those main points? And, um, and, you know, some of them I wasn't sure about, like, and I, like, I remember talking with my family and friends and they're saying, well, don't put the cancer part in because we don't want you to be defined by your cancer experience. And so I thought, Okay, maybe, but, but it was such an important turning point for me. Then my relationship with Mary, um, and then my kids—like, how much of my kids do I reveal in this book? Anyway, yes, it wasn't—it wasn't always clear, and I definitely had internal conflict about what to include. I understand that not only have you written the book, but you are also the voice of the audiobook version as well. Can you tell me a little bit about that process? I was actually not going to do it at first. And then um, the, the senior editor at Knopf, Vicki Wilson, convinced me I should do it. Um, and so uh, and so here I am. I'm, I'm actually in Vancouver, especially to do this. I came here because there's a good recording studio and there's a director um, and there's a, a, a sound engineer. And, you know, I sit in this room with my headphones on with a microphone and um, and and read from you know read the book and and I, you know I I, I read a sentence and it's like stop stop, <laughs> you mispronounce you forgot that word you mispronounced this but and so you know it and you're going way too fast and but now I've got you know it didn't take long um, and and they whip me in shape and so now it's it's going actually pretty well the part part that I find. The hardest, I think, is like the emotional part is trying to read about again about, you know, my brother's death and the emotion around that and not being an actor, <laughs> but, you know, trying not to get too wrapped up in my own emotions, but also conveying emotion, um, you know, as an actor kind of, I don't know, it, that's been challenging, but, but for the most part, I'm so glad I'm doing it. Um, I'm getting such an appreciation for for audiobooks. <laughs> and honestly, that was a, a dimension that had never occurred to me, which was, yes, of course, you have to read it well, but this is also your own life. So mm -hmm. these are things that you're then reliving as you're reading, and you have to gauge how much to let that through. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, you know, I, yesterday I, I read the, the chapter where my brother died, and and I said to the director, I says, I don't know if I can, how do I read this? 
you know, how do I read this sentence, you know, um, the moment he died? And, and she, just, um, she just let me figure it out on my own. She didn't really say anything. And so then I figured out how to do it. And yeah, it was, it was really emotional for me to do that. And um, I'm glad that those chapters are done. <laughs> So I can go on. And now back to the science. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I I wondered too, as I was reading, I thought, is this really boring? Right? Like, you know, describing the experiments, like I was thinking, I don't know if I could, you know, last through trying to understand these experiments. But um, yeah, so I was wondering, I, I guess the question for you is how did you find reading about the, you know, setting up the experiments and then the execution of them and something that I think happens so well within the book is that you are you're constructing a series of building blocks about both the chemistry and the biology that's going on within a forest. And so by the time we are you know, tenting trees and you know, in, <laughs> injecting them with different kinds of carbon, um, we're like, okay, yeah, no, this is the next step in the uh, you know in what we need to do. Let's go. Like, I, I cannot wait to find out. That's really interesting. And by that time, we're right there. And at the, at the same time, seeing the linkages between, uh, between that work or dragging tanks of nitrogen around and your grandfather's workshop filled with you know, cool. gadgets and tools that he'd, uh, that he'd invented himself. So I think it, uh, it all came together like a dream. <laughs> <laughs> Suzanne Simard, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for those great questions. I've been speaking with Dr. Suzanne Simard, author of Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest. Find it and the other books we've talked about along with previous episodes of the show at kobo.com slash conversation or check the show notes for a link. Make sure to catch every conversation by subscribing wherever you listen and leave us a review because it helps other readers find us. Kobo and Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj and hosted by me, Michael Tamlin. Thank you for listening.